I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. Just over a week ago, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, also known as ISIS in the news, gave Christians in the city of Mosul, Iraq, an ultimatum that they either convert to Islam, leave the area, or die. CNN reported that 52 Christian families left the city early on the next day, the Saturday morning, while an armed group prohibited many of them from taking anything but the clothes on their backs as they left the town. Later, all 30 churches and monasteries in that city were placed under ISIS control, some of which were used for their own activities. Another news agency reported that all of the crosses were removed from those buildings while others not being used were burned or destroyed or looted. Now all of this comes at the end of a decade of increased intimidation and persecution against Christians in the area. What happened a decade ago in Iraq? We thought something good, the removal of a dictator. And in many ways it was good. The problem was what replaced him. And so while uh, 10 years ago there were 35,000 Christians living in Mosul, by the time ISIS came and gave their ultimatum, there were only 3,000 because of the persecution that was allowed to run rampant. It's because of this intense persecution in Iraq that our attention is once again focused on the increased global persecution of Christians around the world. The U.S. State Department says that there are more than 60 countries that are openly hostile to Christianity. Consider some of these examples. In North Korea, Christians can expect to face prison camps, torture, or even death. In Iran, four Christians received 80 lashes across their back for the crime of drinking wine during a communion service back in October of last year. Many of you will remember the attack on the mall in Nairobi last year. The Islamic terrorists made clear that any Muslim there could leave. And all they needed to do to prove that they were a Muslim was give the name of Muhammad's mother or cite a verse from the Koran. They made explicit through bullhorns being broadcast into the mall. They were there to kill any Kenyan, their enemy, but especially Christians. In Pakistan, two suicide bombers blew themselves up outside All Saints Church in the city of Peshawar. 81 people were killed and 120 people were wounded. In Syria, anti-government rebels have committed crimes against Christians, which are so terrible I can't even mention them this morning, given the mixed audience that we have. All of this is just the tip of the iceberg, and all of it has just taken place last year. In light of these things this morning, particularly in light of what is happening in Iraq and in Israel and in Palestine, where Christians there are being killed, I want to take a break from our series on the Gospel of Luke, and think about this increased global violence against Christianity. I want us to pause and consider what does this mean for us here this morning in this comfortable room? How should we think about these things? How are we to feel about all of this? What should we do because of the situations believers are facing? To begin to answer these questions, I want us to think about what the author of Hebrews says to us 
And so I want us to read from Hebrews 10, and I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 32. This is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible, and sufficient word. Hear it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." May God bless the reading of his word. In the context of the letter of the Hebrews, you'll remember that there are Jewish Christians who are undergoing persecution, and that is why this letter is in fact being written to them. This letter, which is actually more of a sermon, was written to encourage them for the great temptation they faced was to flee suffering and persecution by going back to the religion of their fathers, going back to the religion that they themselves had grown up in. But the author of Hebrews spends a considerable amount of time in this letter telling them that will not give you any help in an ultimate sense. In a temporary sense, you may escape suffering. You may escape persecution. But in an ultimate sense, you will find no lasting salvation there. For that religion is gone and has been brought to fulfillment in Christ. There is no salvation in the Judaism of old. Forgiveness is now only found in the one who fulfilled it, who fulfilled its temple and its sacrifices and its priests, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these verses, the author of this letter is reminding the Hebrews how they had previously endured persecution and hardship. He was reminding them of what they have done, and now he is encouraging them to do it again, to press on in their faith. And this morning, as we think about this message that was given to them, it is also a message that can apply to us. It will, in fact, help us today have a better understanding, a better way of thinking about a suffering church. It will help bring clarity not only to the kinds of things that they go through, but how we should respond to the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world. And so I want us to to see and understand four things from this text this morning, four realities. First, we need to see the certainty of a suffering church. The certainty of a suffering church. Verse 32 says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The enlightenment the author is talking about here is the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit when he opens up the minds of unbelievers to see, to understand, and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is talking about their conversion and about how after that took place, after their public identification with Christ, they endured suffering. They endured hard struggle, he says. They experienced the persecution of their faith, and he goes on to describe what that persecution looked like. First, it involved public ridicule. It involved public 
ridicule. He says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Hebrews says that the sufferings they endured were not some back alley thing. It wasn't something that was kind of occasional and that a whole lot of people didn't know about. It was kind of isolated incidents. No, no. He says everybody knew what was going on. Everything that you went through was public knowledge. It was taking place in the public square. You endured public ridicule for your faith. And this involved verbal abuse. It involved verbal abuse. They were publicly exposed to reproach, he says. This involves insults and public shame. Imagine having lies being told about you and about how you lived your life and the kind of moral standard that you had or the kind of verbal abuse that comes from those that would bully you and ridicule you because of what you do or how you believe. This kind of, this kind of abuse hits home at an emotional level. And it tends to wear us down and make us to be unsure of the commitments that we have. But it didn't stop there. The suffering that they endured did not stop just with taunts and jeering, but it also involved physical violence. Physical violence. We see this in the word affliction in our text. What they endured did not stop simply with people screaming at them on the street or condemning them in the synagogues. No, it went on to physical abuse. That might have been beatings. It was certainly, we know even from this text, imprisonment at times. That could have came about from mob violence. Or it could have been official government-sanctioned violence against these Christians. Often such things would have been done on trumped-up charges. We see this even today. As most recently as the 1970s. Some Baptist pastors were put in jail by Catholic-dominated areas of French Canada. Why? Because they went witnessing door to door. You say, well, Canada has religious freedom. What was the charge? Disturbing the peace. You see, when we think through the kinds of things that these Hebrew Christians were going through, the kind of suffering they endured because of their faith, it's still things that go on today. It never stopped. It didn't go away in the first century when when this is being written. And again, we're not talking about the kind of suffering that takes place just because we live in this world. There is suffering that takes place just because we're at the wrong place the wrong time. A government coup breaks out and there are rebels fighting in your backyard. That, that, That just happens because you are a citizen in that country. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Christians who suffer precisely because they are Christians. It's the difference between someone coming in and robbing my house because they saw the empty television box on the front yard and someone who despises my God and wants to come in and do my family harm. We're talking about suffering for believers because they have publicly identified with Christ. It is true, it is real, but it also, though it may sadden us, shouldn't surprise us that this took place for the Hebrews and it still takes place today. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24. He said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Jesus' apostle Paul, one who intimately knew this kind of persecution, told the Christians in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ? Do you so desire it that you make good, you put into action those desires and give evidence of a godly life? Then you will endure persecution. It it might be something as small as being rebuked and mocked and made fun of on Facebook because you're not into Fifty Shades of Grey or Game of Thrones because of the aberrant sexuality that is displayed there on television. But it's still going to happen. And it happens far worse in other countries. You go to the end of the book in Revelation 6 and we read what is frankly to me an astonishing passage. In chapter 6 verse 9 we read that there are Christian martyrs symbolized in heaven being protected under the, under the altar of God. These are those who John says were slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. John goes on to say that these martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge the earth and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You see what John is saying there? He's saying that in the mind of God, there is a fixed number of men and women, believers, who will die for their faith before Christ ever returns. In the mysterious sovereign plan of God, He has ordained that there will be not just random acts of violence, but a specific measure of His people who will not just suffer, but who will give up their life and be killed for being a Christian. That, that, that is, that is mind-boggling to me. And it has lots of implications for how we think about church and missions. But this morning, what I hope it drives home for us is the certainty of a suffering church. We, we should not ever expect that until Christ comes back, there will be anything less than a church that undergoes persecution. So how do we respond to that? What, what do we do? How, how, do we, how do we think Well, the Hebrew Christians in this passage give us an example. What we see is that we should respond with compassion for a suffering church. We need to understand the compassion talked about for a suffering church. The author of Hebrews says, Remember that sometimes you yourself suffered, but also remember that other times you saw your friends suffering. You saw the church suffering. He says, what did you do? You had compassion on them. And what did that look like? He says their compassion led them into a fellowship in their suffering, to have fellowship in suffering. The Hebrews, he says, became partners with their brothers and sisters who are being treated severely. That's what we see in verse 33. He says sometimes being partners with those treated with public ridicule, verbal abuse, and physical violence. Think about what he's saying here. The word partners is the same word that shows up in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is excited and thankful and joyful that the Philippians were partners with him in gospel ministry. It's the word that we get the word fellowship from. So think about in our minds what Christian fellowship means. And the author of Hebrews says, when it comes to suffering, you enjoyed the same kind of fellowship. You enjoyed the same kind of partnership with them. You were so aligned with them, you so identified with them, that you actually entered into their suffering with them. So, so what, what would that have actually looked like practically? Well, to, to begin with, it was this kind of public declaration that you were united 
in a common faith with those being dragged out of their homes down the street into prison. When somebody in this culture is being put down, when someone in this culture is, is not looking to go to the media or, or in whatever community you live in, we often want to kind of distance ourselves from them, right? So when, when the president's poll numbers are down, those that are running for election say, I don't want you to come and campaign with me. I, I don't want to be associated with you. When your numbers are high, people are approving, then yeah, come and endorse me. But, but when your numbers are low, I, I really don't want you around me. Why? Because we know that by association, our, our reputation will go down as well. And these Christians said, well, we're not worried about that. These people that you are beating, these people that you are imprisoning, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are of them and they are of us. We are the church. And so they would go to prison and they would visit them. Why? Well, not just to simply encourage them, but the prisons back then weren't like the prisons today. I mean, nobody wants to go to prison, but frankly, um, for those that are there, it's a pretty good deal. Uh, do you realize that, that for, the, for so many things, they get put in line in front of you? If you need an organ transplant, they get priority because they're on government pay, they're on government support. There's an inequity there that involves a whole other conversation. But my point is, the prisons today are not like the prisons back then. The prisons back then, you, you would rot and die, and they would just go throw you in a pile unless somebody brought you food, somebody brought you water, somebody brought you warm clothing so you wouldn't die from exposure. And that's exactly what the Hebrew Christians did. Their brothers and sisters were in jail suffering, and they went to go visit them. They went to go associate with them. They publicly joined them in their shame and in their suffering. Just recently, some of you may have saw the, the campaign on social media that has been going around to show solidarity and support for the Christians of Iraq. The Muslims there identify Christians with the Arabic letter N, which stands for Nazarene. Why? Because Jesus himself was from Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. And so Christians are identified in that way. Throughout the city of Mosul, when, when they know someone is a Christian, they will go to their homes and outside take a can of red spray paint and, and, and draw the, the Arabic letter in there signifying that this house, this house has Christians in it. It is a house of shame and they will endure suffering unless they leave. And so now many Christians on social media are changing their profile pictures to that same red in. Why? Is it because Muslims are going to come to our house? are going to, you know, spike our social media accounts? No, probably not. But we're trying to do something, to do anything to show solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Iraq who are undergoing such difficulty. We may live in a different country. We never see their faces this side of eternity, but they are of us and we are of them nonetheless. We are all Christians. We are all Nazarenes because all of us have faith in the man from Nazareth who gave his life for us. So notice that compassion not only led them to fellowship in suffering, it also led them to being joyful in suffering. It led them to being joyful in suffering. They identified with these suffering Christians. What was, what was the result? They themselves suffered. He says, remember, you had compassion on those imprisoned and ended up joyfully accepting the plundering of your own property. They came to the prison and suddenly they were identified. 
not just as those who were friendly to the suffering, but as those who were part of them, and they became targets for abuse. Uh, abuse. How did they respond? Hebrews says, you responded joyfully. Now, does that mean they were happy all their stuff got taken away? Ah, come on, that was garbage anyway. We're glad to be rid of it. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is that they joyfully endured what was happening to them. They did not lose hope because of the suffering that they were going through. Yeah, that's difficult for us on any level, frankly, to get our heads around and to embrace to have joy in suffering. Sometimes it comes out in fake and phony ways where we suppress the sorrow and the anguish that we're feeling and we put on a plastic smile because we think that's what Christian joy is about. We just get a stiff upper lip and we keep calm and carry on. That's not what Christian suffering is or, or Christian joy is in the midst of suffering. That, that's not it at all. We, we can weep. We can have sorrow. But we have a confidence that carries us through and allows us to have an attitude of joy in God. And these Christians have the same thing. Christians today should have confidence in the midst of suffering. That's the third thing that we see. The confidence of the suffering church. The confidence of the suffering church. Hebrews says in verse 34, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property. How could they do that? He says they responded that way. The next verse, Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now notice the play on words. Unfortunately, the ESV decided to talk about property and then a possession, but it's really the same thing. They plundered your possessions, but you responded with joy since you knew you had a better possession waiting for you on the last day. This is why Christians can respond with joy in persecution and suffering, because they have a great reward waiting for them. That's their confidence. And notice two things about this rewarding possession. First, it's a better possession. It's a better possession. How is it better? Well, first let's back up and say, what is the possession? What's he talking about? The possession is eternal life with God. That's the possession that the believer has. Why is it better? Well, first of all, just because of its superior quality. There is nothing else in this life that compares to being in fellowship with and living together forever with God in all his glory. If you don't believe that, if you are not convinced of that from the outset, then you will never have joy in this life. If, if, if a relationship, if stuff looks better than eternal life with God, then you're never going to have joy in this life because your stuff is going to fall apart and your stuff is going to disappoint you and people are going to disappoint you and relationships are going to hurt you and you will never have joy. Hebrews says, remember, don't, don't throw away your confidence. You have a better possession in God, the one who is the rewarder of faith. The believer in Christ not only has a better possession, but also an abiding possession. An abiding possession. Our possession is lasting just like our Lord himself. He, he has died and he has raised back to life to never die again. And so in contrast to everything in this created world which is passing away, Christ never passes away. Christ never goes away. 
Therefore, this internal, this eternal inheritance is laid out in front of us. And he tells the Hebrews, when you are called to endure suffering, remember that possession that you have. That is the confidence that you have in the midst of persecution. That is the confidence that allows you to endure. God has something better for you. God has something lasting, abiding for you. It's never going to go away. Do, do you remember how, how Jude described it? He, he described it as this, as this precious, beautiful prize that was going to be kept unfading forever for you. We should always, therefore, have in this life one eye on the benefits that the cross of Christ has secured for us. Think about what he says in verse 37. Quoting from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, he says, In a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Who, who is the coming one? It's the Messiah. It's Christ. He is coming back for those who have faith in him. He is coming back to give us that better and abiding possession. And so by remembering that, by fixing our eyes on that, we can press on and endure. We can have confidence even today. Just previous to this in chapter 10, we see that Christ and in Christ alone we can have full and final salvation. He says in Him, Hebrew Christian, remember there is full cleansing of your consciousness, full cleansing of your souls. You can't go back to the blood of bulls and goats. No, Christ is the only one whose blood fully propitiates our sins. Have certainty in that and you will be able to endure because of His name. That's what he calls us to, to take that confidence and endure. And that's the last thing that we see. In fact, it's the challenge that is presented to a suffering church, the challenge for a suffering church. Based on the confidence you have, endure. Hebrews says in verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What are we to do in the face of suffering? Endure, he says. Do not allow the difficulties you're facing to dislodge your faith and cause you to shrink back away from it. Press on. Endure. Specifically, endure with faith. Endure with faith. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The faith he's talking about is a continual faith in God based on the provision he's given us in Christ. He is worth our trust. Notice, notice what happens if we do not endure. If we shrink back, if we lose faith, he says we will not preserve our souls. We may have confessed our faith in Christ through baptism. We may have served God faithfully in the church. But if we do not persevere, if we do not endure, if we turn away from God, then it is revealed that we never had faith in the first place. The benefits of Christ are not ours to enjoy. That is why Hebrews can quote from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk in verse 38 when he says, My righteous one shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Do you want God to take pleasure in you? Do you? Do you want God to take pleasure in you? Then put your faith in him. 
Show him to be a God worthy of your faith. Put your confidence in him. Put your trust in him, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. Notice that that is where our faith should lead us. We, we have this faith in him by which we endure, but where does that faith lead? It leads to obedience. That is the second part of the challenge of the suffering church. We are to endure with obedience. He says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I think that's pretty much the best definition of obedience you're ever going to find. That's where faith should lead us to do the will of God, to do and accomplish what he says we should do and accomplish. In other words, based on what he's saying here, we cannot lay claim to faith in Christ. We cannot identify ourselves as Christians if we never obey our Lord. We can say we love Christ all we want, but if we do not seek to do his will, seek to obey, though it is not going to be perfect, but if it is the direction and orientation fundamentally of our heart and mind and life and everything that we are to obey him, then we can't claim to know him or to love him. Now be careful, Hebrews is not saying that in order to be saved, we obey. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if we are saved, we will obey. Obedience is the fruit of faith. And so that is the challenge for the church, not only for those enduring incredible suffering today in places like Iraq and Syria and Egypt, but even for us as well. Our difficulty, our suffering may pale in comparison to theirs, but the call is the same, to endure with faith and obedience. Hebrews has made clear to us, I hope, that the, the reality of a suffering church and what is expected of them. We have to understand that it is real, it is coming, and we must show compassion to those that are suffering. We do that from having confidence in Christ that leads us to take up this challenge to endure. But practically speaking, this afternoon, this evening, this week, what can you do in light of the crisis of Christian persecution that is taking place today? What can you do for those on the front lines of the suffering church? At least three things. First of all, you can pray for those who are suffering. Pray for those suffering. We can call politicians and urge policies to be made that will help, but ultimately our hope lies in a king who sits sovereign over all the nations on an eternal throne. Therefore, we should call out to him in prayer. There are many sites and apps that will give you very specific needs of specific people the moment persecution breaks out. And I would encourage you to download those things, go to those sites, subscribe to the news feed. But I want to give you four things that you can pray for anybody, anywhere, any Christian who is about to or is even now undergoing persecution. First of all, from 1 Timothy 2, we should pray for our government leaders. That's what we're told to do. To pray for them to be saved, that they will create a peaceful environment in which the gospel may flourish. Secondly, from the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, we should pray for our enemies. Pray for our enemies. Pray that they hear the gospel and they turn from their wicked ways. Don't just pray, protect them from their enemies. Pray for the enemies. Isn't that what Jesus tells us? To love them and therefore to pray for them. I remember one of the most provocative things that was said, but clearly the most biblical after 9-11, was that we should pray for the conversion of Osama bin Laden. 
Christians got mad about that. But how else do you apply the text? Does that mean our military should not have gone in and taken him out for the crimes in which he committed? Absolutely they should have. But in the meantime, we should have been praying for his conversion. From Acts 4 and the example of the early Christians who were first persecuted for the sake of Christ, we pray for boldness in preaching the gospel. And finally, from this passage, we pray for the endurance of God's people. Secondly, what should we do? We should only pray for the suffering. We should secondly identify with those suffering. Identify with those suffering. Do you remember what Hebrews says? Pastor Richard preached on it just a few months ago from the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 3. He says this, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He says, remember, they are of you. You are of them. We together are in the body of Christ. So when you pray for them because they're in prison, imagine that you yourself are in prison. When you're praying for those being mistreated, imagine that you yourself are being mistreated because spiritually, that's exactly what's taking place. That is what is taking place place. And so we need to find ways, just like the Hebrews did, that they were, they were uh, applauded for. We need to find ways to publicly identify with persecuted Christians because we're of the same body. If, if this was in another state and it was your own parents or your siblings or your children, you would not hesitate to speak for them, to say, that is my kin, that is my family. Loved ones, understand through faith in Christ, these are our parents. These are our siblings. These are our children. The blood of Christ runs thicker and deeper than any familiar blood running through our veins. And even if we end up bearing their reproach ourselves, we must identify with suffering Christians. We must pray. We must identify, and finally, we must give to those suffering. We must give to those suffering. Ministries like Voice of the Martyrs give many opportunities in which you can help and do very practical things. You can, you can go on your computer tonight and you can type a letter to a Chinese Christian suffering in prison. They will translate it and deliver it for you. What does that cost us? 20 minutes of our time. That's it. But are we willing to give it? You can go on there and for about $25, you can put together something called an action pack that provides a blanket and water and a couple other things for Christians fleeing persecution. That, that, that's, that's piddly talk for most of us. But are we willing to give? It's easy to be concerned for others, but will we actually help them? Will we follow the commands of Jesus and display our faith through our works? We have right now all along our southern border, all the way up through the Midwest states, refugees and illegals coming to this country with sometimes very desperate needs. But frankly, they've got tons of government assistance right now. And we have people that are united to us by faith in Christ that are fleeing for their very lives, seeking refuge in other countries. Where will they go? Who will they stay with? Who will feed them? Will we be like the Macedonian Christians that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 who gave, although themselves were in extreme poverty, 
yet they gave generously to the believers suffering from a famine in Jerusalem? Will we give generously, sacrificially, and joyfully to meet the the needs of those who will one day stand next to us before the throne of God and sing praise to the Lamb that was slain? Will we nod our heads, think some pious thoughts, maybe even shed a tear, but then go on about our business and ignore the need that is there? God commands us, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Father, I pray this morning that by taking this relatively short time to think and address not only what is happening in the news, but how you have instructed us to think about it, that there will be a lasting effect in our lives and in our church. Father, it is so easy to to forget that the church is bigger than just us. The church is bigger than just this country and the, the few people that we are associated with globally. Father, your church exists around this world and in so many places. Those that cry out to you morning, noon, and night just like us are suffering. And Father, we wish that we could go and we could put it into it. We wish that we could know and we could stop it. But in your mysterious providence, we know that there is also a plan behind that suffering. Nevertheless, we're not called to simply shrug our shoulders, to sing K Sarah Sarah and forget about it. God, we are called to action. You command us to do something. And Father, though what I may do as an individual may be different than someone else, what this church may do that is different than other churches, Father, you call us to some very simple things, to pray, to identify, and to give with our brothers and sisters who are suffering. Father, as we do that, may you prepare us as well as our culture begins to slowly but clearly turn up the heat and its indignity towards us, May we be prepared to endure as well, knowing that believers in other countries, even believers sitting in prison, are praying for us right now, are praying for us that we would not only have a, be a voice for them, but that we would endure just as they would. Father, we are the body of Christ. May we not forget it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.